Amanda, don't sit down. I, I could hear that again. Would you like? <laughs> Thank you. How appropriate for what we're going to be looking at in the scriptures tonight. Almighty God, and we think in terms of Almighty God and God's people will be rejoicing in what He does. Uh, but there will be judgment. We understand that. We understand a lot of things that will be going on. Isn't it nice to be on the right side? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we are on the right side if we know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. And thank you for the scripture that we're going to look at together now. We trust that it will be something that will be encouraging and yet at the same time sobering for us. Sobering because of the reality of these words that are here. This is no fairy tale. This is not something that someone concocted and is trying to perpetrate on us. It is your word. And it tells us factually what will happen long before it happens. And thank you for that now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn together to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 17. The wrath of the Lamb, it's also the wrath of the one sitting on the throne. It's kind of interesting that it doesn't say the wrath of the lion, but it is the wrath of the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain for us, the one who took away all of our sins and is still doing everything he can for us. So I'm going to read verses 9 through 17, and I'm going to encourage you to fasten your seatbelts because um, this is going to be a little bit of rough riding here. When he opened the fifth seal... And this would be the Lamb, the only one worthy to do that. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can Stand. We've entered into a description of the tribulation period, roughly Revelation 6 through the first part of of chapter 19. We've seen so far in our study that the tribulation period is a literal seven-year period divided into half, and it is given to us in different ways, two periods of either 1,260 days, or 42 months, which is the same duration, three and a half years or a time times and half a time. The second three and a half year period is known as the Great Tribulation. 
And that means that it has intensified immensely for those last three and a half years. The tribulation begins when the Antichrist, also known as the beast or the ruler who will come of Daniel 9.26, will make a covenant with God's people. He'll make a covenant with the Jews. And in that covenantal period, he will break it in the middle. So he'll break it in mid-tribulation. We've seen how to understand the relationship of the seven seal judgments to the seven trumpet judgments to the seven bowl judgments. We illustrated it by comparing it to a telescope, one coming out of the other and then coming still out of the other. Here's another way of looking at it. Imagine that you're a very bright person. Some of you are saying, I don't have to imagine that. But some of us have to imagine, so let's all of us imagine together that uh, we're bright people We were given seven wishes. You make six wishes, and your final wish is what? Seven more wishes. Okay, and then you make those seven more wishes, or six more, and then when you come to the seventh one of the second set, then what do you wish for? Seven more. That's kind of what we have going for us here. You'll see it illustrated on the screen. We've got seven seals, but out of the seventh seal comes the seven trumpet judgments. Out of the seventh trumpet judgment comes the seven bowl judgments, or vile, spelled V-I-A-L, judgments, as we see them in some of the translations. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Also, we don't say much about this, but there are also seven thunder judgments. How many of you didn't realize that? There are seven thunder judgments as well. Um, They're only mentioned in four verses very briefly in chapter 10. They're sealed, and they're not revealed to us. In my mind, they are very ominous, very ominous because they're going to be sealed, and they're thunder judgments. It doesn't sound good. So in addition to everything else we're going to see, there are some judgments that we don't see. We're not permitted to get a glimpse of them at this time just to know that they're coming as well. During the opening of the first four seal judgments, that would be Revelation chapter 6, the first eight verses, we didn't read, we stopped, or we started at verse 9, we're introduced to the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and we looked at them last Sunday night. I'd like for us just to get a glimpse of that in our thinking again, picture our earth as it will be by plugging in some familiar reference points that we know of to see what things may be like as these first four seal judgments are opened respectively. So picture this. Picture a man growing in worldwide prominence and popularity. A man with the magnetism and the candor of Adolf Hitler. You might say instead of candor, the brashness of Adolf Hitler. I mentioned last week that from 1933 to 1941, Germany violated 69 treaties. It's a taste of what is to come in the tribulation period. I won't ever forget from my study of history, and many of you who've studied American history and studied world history understand uh, what had happened before World War II. It was that famous peace with honor negotiated by Chamberlain of England and Deladier of France. With they, they negotiated that treaty, peace with honor, with Adolf Hitler, And a short time later, Germany took over Czechoslovakia as they had planned. And then soon after that was the the warfare against Poland. Picture that again in your mind. Picture the deadly surprise attack on Pearl Harbor when, oddly enough, 
peace negotiations were going on between our country and Japan. It's that type of thing that's going to happen during the tribulation. There'll be wars, there'll be rumors of wars, but there will be a pseudo-peace, a false peace that will come during the time the white horse rides in verses 1 and 2. Peaceful conquest, a bloodless conquest will be going on during that time. A treaty will have been made with the Jews, but there will be other treaties broken. The Jewish one won't be broken until halfway through. Now picture this. Now picture a cloning factory pouring out hundreds of Charles Mansons, Timothy McVeigh's, Omar Mateen. You may recall he's the one who just killed 50 people and injured 53 in Orlando last year. And picture along with them this cloning factory is putting out assorted mass murderers, serial killers, psychotic masochists every day, turning them loose on the earth. Picture Genghis Khan, Stalin, Hitler, Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, and others with a thirst for conquest, vying for power and wars breaking out everywhere. The red horse rides war and murder next picture the great depression famine and inflation starvation despondency lack of trust breadline soup kitchens growing anxiety and despair now multiply that many times over the black horse rides in verses five and six of the same chapter famine and inflation Finally, picture almost two billion people on earth killed by sword, famine, and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. Maybe Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds isn't so far-fetched. Some of you remember that one. Some of you have tried hard to forget it and can't. Maybe Willard and Ben will be truer than these lousy movies about rat invasions. Any of you remember them? Willard and Ben? Maybe the swarm will come alive. I haven't seen that or the other. I think I may have seen Willard when I was a kid, but um, maybe that kind of thing will be happening because the description here of these wild beasts can mean the smaller beasts, like the bees or the rats that will be infesting uh, the, the earth at that time. That's the pale, sickly horse riding in verses 7 to 8. Death rides him and Hades follows closely behind. Now, please understand what I'm about to say. Listen carefully to this. And then it gets worse. Then it gets worse. We haven't even hit the great tribulation yet, although we're probably very, very close to it. In Matthew chapter 24, listen as I, as I share this scripture, Matthew 24 verses 21 and 22. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never well will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. Just let this sink in as I read this. Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. 
the judgments even of this fourth seal that we just alluded to briefly are unparalleled in history. The first three seals, they're very, very intense, but they're not totally unique. By the time we get to that fourth seal and we begin to see all that is taking place in, almost two billion people on earth to be killed. Beginning with the fourth seal may well be the beginning of the description of the Great Tribulation. It is very difficult to pinpoint exactly when it takes place, but it could be there. If the supreme mark of the Great Tribulation period is unprecedented trouble, then the fourth seal certainly qualifies for describing that. Some expositors don't feel the Great Tribulation begins until chapter 11, some as early as the first seal. I don't think it's important that we, we put the dot on the graph at exactly the right spot there, but simply to know what's coming. By the time we come to the end of the chapter we're dealing with now, chapter 6, I believe it's almost certain, though, that the description is that of the Great Tribulation. And I think even as I read that scripture this evening, I think some of us were thinking, you know what, I really hope that he's right and the rapture comes before all of this. We don't want to be a part of that, but that's not why we teach a pre-tribulation rapture. We teach it because we believe that's what the Bible teaches, but we're glad that we don't have to be going through some of the what they're going to be going through at that time. Because we've seen this in the reading, the opening of the fifth seal in verses 9 through 11. In verse 9, the fifth seal is open. The scene shifts from earth to heaven. There are four actions described. The first action John saw. And that's an action. He's able to see some of the things that are going on. What he saw particularly, he saw, and the word isn't used in our ESV, but he saw martyrs under the altar. Those who were killed, it says, because of the word of God and the witness they had borne. Other translations will say the testimony that they maintained. In other words, they were true martyrs. They were killed because of what they had done for the Lord Jesus Christ. They were unashamed of him during that time period. Who were they? Well, where they appear in the story indicates that they've come from the tribulation scene on earth. If the church has already been raptured, this must be those saved on earth during the tribulation and martyred for their faith. There was widespread persecution and there was a lot of trouble during the first four seals. But now specifically, some persecution of believers, but not all those deaths were martyrdom. But now the martyrs are gathered. They're gathered under the altar in heaven. And the fact that these martyrs asked for judgment on those who live on the earth makes it apparent that their persecutors are still there. They're still living. This isn't something that had taken place hundreds of years ago or an accumulation of things that had taken place over thousands of years. These martyrs are not from the distant past. So the timing appears to indicate that they have come out of the tribulation period already at this period of time. Notice how these judgments are parallel with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. And we can look to that together. Let's look at Matthew chapter 24 and verses 4 through 7. Turn with me for just a moment to Matthew 24. Do you remember when I used to say I love to hear the pages turning? Now I hear clicks and pages turning and all sorts of other things. Matthew chapter 24, picking up in verse 4. 
This is uh, Jesus answering them. They had some questions about what would be the, the timing of the end. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. First four seals described and and continuing, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. By the time we get down to verse 9, we could very well be in the fifth seal. Verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. At least this culminates in that fifth seal, this that is described there. When we look in Matthew 24 and we come down to verse 15, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, and we saw that last week in Daniel 9.27, when you see that happening, when you see it's apparently going to be the Antichrist standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, and that will be at a time halfway through the tribulation period when we see the treaty with Israel broken, and Israel then becomes the uh, the most hunted of the persecutions that will be taking place. So the persecution will begin the first half of the tribulation, continue into the second half after the abomination of desolation, and it will get worse. The persecution, even initially, we know will be worldwide in scope. God's followers, we're told in Matthew 24, 9, will be hated by all nations. So the persecution will be rampant everywhere. The fifth seal makes it clear that in the future time of tribulation, it will be virtually impossible to declare one's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ without paying for it with the cost of one's own life. It may well be that a majority of those who trust Christ as Savior at that time will be put to death. Here are some other references to the martyrs in the tribulation period. If you'll look with me at these and... um, First, I've got to go back to where they are. Revelation chapter 7, if you'll turn with me there. Revelation 7 and verse 9. You'll notice we're getting ahead of ourselves just a little bit. We're in chapter 6 now over to chapter 7. Something very interesting that is going on here. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around its elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And how interesting it is. I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. 
They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. They've just come from the tribulation period. Revelation chapter 13, verse 15. If you turn with me there, we see more persecution going on. And remember what it says. It says to those who are here, and we'll see it again in just a moment, it says to those who are under the altar, the uh, the martyrs, they're there resting for a little while, and they're going to rest until they're joined by others. There is a list of the martyrs who have to be compiled until they can all uh, receive new bodies after this time. And we'll see that uh, later in our study in Revelation. But when we look at verse uh, chapter 13, verse 15, very interesting here again. And it was allowed to give breath. This talking here about the, the second beast, the false prophet. He was allowed to give breath to the image of the Antichrist. And we'll get to all of this later on. But it says, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. If they didn't worship this image of the Antichrist, they would be killed as well. Turn with me to Revelation 18.24. Talking about Babylon, and again in our study, Lord willing, we'll get to that another time. But in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads and their hands. An incredible journey through the book of Revelation to see the martyrs, to see this huge, huge amount of people who came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Question that is often asked is, who will be saved during this tribulation period? Who will be saved? A lot of people will be. A whole lot of people, it tells us in the Scriptures. And there are those who teach that if on this side of the rapture we reject the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be no second chance for us. I can't prove that with a, with a text But I can say this, the tamest way I can put this is that there's no guarantee that someone will get a second chance on the other side of the rapture. That means that we want to make sure that we're not among those huge, that huge group of martyrs who are going to be there on the other side of the rapture. Please keep in mind, and I won't take the time to turn to Revelation chapter 9, but it tells us there that there are a lot of people who will be hardened to the truth. They'll hear it over and over again, but they'll be hardened to it. Well, how will so many be saved? How are all this this horde of people going to be saved? Well, we're going to see, Lord willing, next time there'll be 144,000 Jewish evangelists with supernatural power, supernatural backing, along with two supernatural witnesses. There'll be an angel flying in the sky who will declare the gospel. They will be very, very effective and again, Revelation 7, 9 indicates that the saved martyrs coming out of the tribulation number a multitude that nobody can count. So where are they all coming from? 
Well, there's a second action that's taking place here as well. The second action in heaven, it says these martyrs called out in a loud voice or cried out. It says ESV, the NIV says they called out in a loud voice and they were asking to be avenged. They were asking to be avenged, and sometimes we say, well, that sounds a little cruel. Why would they be doing that? This is very similar to the imprecatory psalms where David is calling out judgment, righteous judgment on the enemies of the Lord. The same kind of a thing is happening here now. Prayers offered in that same spirit. Here's what one commentator has said. This does not reflect a personal vendetta on their part. They're not trying to tell God what to do or when to do it. They're asking him the question because they have a holy desire to see Satan and Antichrist destroyed, iniquity defeated, the wicked judged, and Jesus Christ reigning in glory on the earth. And so we can see them in verse 10, crying out with this loud voice. They're passionate about this. Please understand, this is a very significant part of this chapter. The prayers of God's people who will be answered. There's a third action it says each was given a white robe. That was a gift showing eternal righteousness, blessedness, dignity, honor, and victory. Sometimes people will ask the question then, when I go back to verse 9, it says the souls of them who had been slain for the word of God were there. Uh, the souls, is this a spirit kind of being? Is this immaterial Uh, No, it's got to be material. They may even be temporary until they get their glorified bodies at the end, but there's something you're going to hang a robe on, uh, and there are other indications they're standing. In order to be standing at at a certain time here, uh, there needs to be something material in that body. So there's something that is going on there in a material way as well. The fourth action, they were told to rest up a little bit, wait a little while longer, according to verse 11. And a reason again for that is it wouldn't be long, but they would be joined by others until that list of martyrs is going to be complete. Now, let me ask you this question. I hinted at it. What is the real judgment? If this is judgment on the the people that are not God's people, if this is judgment, then what is the real judgment of this fifth seal? And it was not martyrdom, as some will teach, because that martyrdom was not God judging his people. The, the, the real judgment that is going on here is the seals depicting God's wrath and judgment on the evil and the ungodly. And that fifth seal has to do with the prayers of the tribulation martyrs for God to avenge their murder. Many of us act as if this prayer is just a formality and prayer has little effect. But these prayers that are acted on become the significance of this judgment. It's not God judging his people by martyrdom. It is God judging the rest of the world, those who have rejected him, as a result of the prayers of his people. Then we have the opening of the sixth seal, verses 12 through 17. At the beginning of this seal, it appears to me that the midpoint of the tribulation has been passed. The great tribulation is now in view And there are other scriptures that depict that. Again, we could go back to Matthew 24, we could go to Luke 21, and we could see them, but we won't do that this evening. It's hard to imagine a scene more terrible than if we glance again at verses 12 through 17. 
And for some, as they look at that, they say, this can't possibly be meant to be taken literally. I mean, look at what is going on there. That is absolutely, fantastically terrible to see that. So should we take this literally? Or is this somehow a figurative description? Because some people will take it. You'll read a lot of Bible scholars, and you'll read those that you know their names, and you'll recognize them as conservative Bible scholars. They want to take this figuratively. They want to make symbols out of all this that is here. They say what we're looking at is not really all of this thing that is going on with the sun and the moon and the stars. That 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 can't be. They say this is symbolic of some type of violent convolution of the structure of society, or it's chaos in government, or it's some kind of ecclesiastical turmoil, and it's describing things are really going to be messed up on the earth, and the government and religion and everything else that's going to be messed up. Uh, but we don't really want to be seen taking this literally. But some do take it literally. Let me share with you what John Walvard has said. He says, There are a number of reasons for preferring to take this passage in its literal meaning. While this is not the final breakup of the world as described later in Revelation, when a further period of terrible judgments will be poured on the world, it does seem to indicate that beginning with the sixth seal, God is undertaking a direct intervention into human affairs. The judgments of war, famine, and death, and the martyrdom of the saints have largely originated in human decisions and in the evil heart of man. The judgments described here, however, originates in God as a divine punishment inflicted upon a blasphemous world. As I study this, I don't see any good reason why these elements cannot be literal, applying the proper definition to what literal is all about. And if this is literal, that makes it absolutely horrendous. Apparently, those mentioned in verses 15 and 16 take it literally. Remember them? The kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone, slave, free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. You don't do that when there's religious turmoil in the earth. And you don't do that when there is some type of governmental turmoil and they're not able to get along well. Calling on the, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath is come and who can stand? Apparently they're taking it literally. Look at the natural elements that are used in the judgments that are here. A great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to earth. Some say, now that, you can't take that literally. I, I believe you can. The stars, the word for stars is the Greek word astir. Greek word astir can refer to actual stars. It can mean stars but it can also refer to any heavenly body other than the sun and the moon. The stars obviously are too large to fall to the earth. The earth would be incinerated. But what we can see here, it would be very properly interpreted or translated to say that asteroids or meteor showers could be in view here. It doesn't have to be stars. In fact, when we use a literal, uh, a literal interpretation of the scriptures, the stars couldn't be pelting the earth but meteors could and asteroids could and and very clearly that could be in view here and some of this language the sky receded like a scroll rolling up it's 
not the final dissolution of the earth, but it certainly would get people's attention. The mountains and the islands removed from their places. They didn't look the same. The mountains were different. Maybe some of the mountains were leveled. It doesn't tell us in great detail. It just says they were removed from their place. They're not where they used to be. Can we take that literally? I don't see any reason why we can't. But let me ask you this question. Is this just one mention of this type of thing in the Scripture, or can we find it elsewhere? And the fact of the matter is that we can find it in a lot of places elsewhere. If you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 2 for a moment. I've got a couple of verses highlighted, one verse highlighted on the screen, but I want to highlight a few more. Isaiah chapter 2. Let's pick up in verse 12. And we'll read through this verse that I have here, verse 21. And we'll see that this is talking about end times. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols shall utterly pass away. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rides to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves for worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Isaiah 34, for all the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. We see this all over the scriptures. Joel chapter 34 and verse 4, we see it again. And we see it in Joel chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. And I'm not going to take time to read all of these except one verse in Joel 2.31. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. We've already seen in Matthew chapter 24, we alluded to it, we didn't read this verse, but Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Same thing in Luke 21, verses 25 and 26. It is all over the scriptures that this is happening. It's not one isolated incident that's recorded in Revelation and maybe it's been misread or maybe we've taken it to an extreme we shouldn't have. It's predicted all over the scriptures. The result, paralyzing fear from people from all walks of life, as we read in Revelation chapter 6. Since then, 2 Corinthians 5.11 says something that we can apply to our lives. It says, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. 
That's an answer to the question, well, what are we supposed to do about all of this? What are we supposed to do about this? We've just heard this, if we've taken this in, and even if you want to take it symbolically or figuratively, it is not a good time for people on this planet. So what are we supposed to do? Well, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. Fear means dread here, terror, reverence, respect. It's from phobeo, from which we get our word phobia, an intense fear, a lasting fear. We try to persuade people. We understand what's coming. God's given to us insight. Would you want to see anybody, even your worst enemy, go through what we've just described? And it's not the worst parts yet. Listen as I close with reading Ezekiel chapter 33, three verses from Ezekiel 33. Son of man, Ezekiel is referred to as son of man. I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade him from his ways, that wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. That warning to the watchman, if you see the danger coming, you've got to sound the alarm, or you're culpable. That's the point that's made several times in the book of Ezekiel and elsewhere in Scripture. And we see it coming. We've got to sound the alarm. But sometimes we don't. We don't want to because we'll look like some religious fanatics. I mean, can you imagine trying to tell somebody who's a skeptic what we just saw in the scriptures? They'd shake your heads and they think we're crazy. And so therefore we back away. But that's not the job of a watchman. The watchman isn't to determine, well, maybe they won't listen to me. Maybe if I sound the alarm, it'll be wrong. And then I'll get in all kinds of trouble there. God's saying, no, you don't want to be accountable for the same thing they're going to be accountable for if you know and don't say anything about it. So a grave responsibility is ours to not keep back sharing our faith in the Lord Jesus so that people don't have to go through this. We don't have to go through all the gory detail, perhaps, that we just went through, but for people to understand, judgment is coming, that the Lord Jesus will make things right, and in so doing, those who reject him have a very, very difficult time ahead. And that's only dealing with time. That's not even talking about eternity yet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving to us a privilege to be your ambassadors and at the same time to be your watchman, to sound the alarm. And as we see what is coming, we're thankful that we don't have to be here, but we also want to be thankful that our loved ones and our friends and our neighbors won't have to be here because we've shared with them the Lord Jesus can save them from their sin for all of eternity, and part of that salvation will be from the terrible things coming on this earth. So we don't want to see anybody go through that, and worse, to be separated from you for all of eternity. Give us a heart of passion for those who are lost. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.